My 20s were a decade of trying to figure out what in the heck was going on. We were told something is happening on the streets, so get ready, use your guns against the people. Whatever you do, as best as you know how to live into it, be full-hearted or just quit. Be full-hearted and quitting. Our lives are meant to make us feel very safe and very taken care of. And then what you end up feeling is you don't know yourself in unknown places. So by day we're podcasters. And as you hopefully know, we also produce magazine. And as you also hopefully know, we produce films. Got a couple in the can for you coming out later this summer. But Sam and I have a passion. And it's hardly, and at this point, it hardly qualifies as a side passion. We've mentioned at a few points that we do triathlons together and mountain bike races. And I think that it is probably safe to say that for amateur athletes, we possess a unique level of obsession. I don't know. I, obsession sounds, that makes me feel bad. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, uh, dedication. I'll, Something steely eyed. Dedication sounds better, but I feel like dedication wins more races, whereas <laughs> okay. obsession just runs races. <laughs> Oof, fair point. So we thought we'd take a podcast a day and dive in to the world of the body. We're going to break this hopefully into two pieces and first talk about the philosophical, or at least maybe even the theological, if Sam brings up anything interesting, dimension of exercise. And then we're going to geek out for as long as we want to, and hopefully not longer than you're interested, about running, biking, swimming, nutrition, and the stack of books that is actually on my desk. Like, I have one stack of books that's, like, research for things that we're actually working on. <laughs> and it's got, you know, like, behaving in public, theology of ethics. Like the, And then, like, right next to it, there's, like, brain training for runners. There's the one-minute workout. Yeah, there's, that's true. That's true. Your desk is a, little, is a little full. Okay, so when Blaine uses words like, you know, theological, philosophical, body, I... Part, part of me kind of braces myself because I don't always, I don't totally know where he's going to go. He's read these books. I haven't. I, I pretend to. I kind of ride on Blaine's coattails here. But what what evokes for me as well is a lot of the conversations that we had in Killing Lions about the importance of the fact that we are beings that inhabit kind of multiple well realms is a little too out there, but we have multiple dimensions to ourselves. Right? I think we'd all agree that we have the mind, we have the body. Those who uh, actually become very trendy. I think most people these days would say you have a soul. And so you have these you have these dimensions. And in that book, we talked a lot about the, like it's important to be training each one. It's important to not uh, ignore one of the many facets of ourselves. And a lot of what we talk about here are ways that we're training our hearts, that we're training our minds, that we're training our souls, that we're trying to grow as people. And uh, we were kind of couch potatoes like a year and a half ago if we're if we're honest like not not like full on wally status um i we've never been there cuz we've been pretty active in our lives however i think we also were coasting on like the momentum of college and life before college and had realized i think you were saying what you like rode your bike a couple of times and you're in like a matter of years. Yeah, I actually know the exact amount because I wrote them down because they were momentous. But in the entire year and a half of grad school, I went on three bike rides that were just bike rides. Like I did some bike commuting, but that's very different. That's oh, like, shoot, because I was going to count my bike commuting as my ride. No, bike commuting doesn't count because you can go as slow as you want. Like a bike ride is like you're going out and you're going to try and go fast. I went on three in a year and a half. And then I... Got to Ransom Tart, where you guys like to do lunch rides, and then this thing kind of snowballed. But I love that framing of you're training your soul, you're training your mind, and where does the body fit in? Because I think that where the problem begins and where I want to start is the isolation of the body from uh, the mind and the isolation of the body from the soul. Because, you know, when you approach any training regime— it's viewed as this like weird thing. 
And usually you're motivated to do it by this ambiguous term like health or like fitness or weight loss or appearance or all these like nebulous goals that aren't actually helpful to a person. But it's like a thing you go do and hope that it will kind of augment your regular life rather than something that fits into your model for flourishing that where mind and body and soul are all involved in this one project. And here's a quote uh, from Wendell Berry, who I absolutely love. I think if you are at all interested in exercise, before you go to any of the other things that we're going to recommend, and I have a lot of them, I would say go read Wendell Berry's essay, The Body and the Earth, because it will get you going in the right direction of thinking of your, about your body. But he has a section in there titled The Isolation of the Body. Perhaps the fundamental damage of the specialist system, the damage from which all other damages issue, has been the isolation of the body. At some point, we began to assume that the life of the body would be the business of grocers and medical doctors who need take no interest in the spirit, whereas the life of the spirit would be the business of churches, which, have, which would have at best only a negative interest in the body. Barry continues... You cannot devalue the body and value the soul or value anything else. Hmm. Those feel like high stakes, right? Because if we're prone to ignore or demonize or neglect one, at least Barry is saying that uh, that has some consequences to it. And I think these days we're more prone to think about those in terms of like your health or your summer beach body or all of the freaking magazines at the checkout about how you should have started 10 months ago. And I I remember feeling after college kind of stepping into adult life that I wanted, I wanted to become, this is kind of like the core of Anson's. Like I wanted to become a man who was, moving in it in the direction of life and beauty and truth. And so I found myself wanting to take care of my body and begin to exercise and all the rewards of that. And then almost as soon as I started thinking that I wanted to do it, I felt behind. I yes. felt that like you really should have been on the swim team in high school and been so much more dedicated. And I was like, I'm already feeling dog. I like I'm just just starting out. And there's that resistance that we spoke of um, a couple of podcasts ago. Yes. You know, I can't tell you the number of times that I've looked up, like, running plans for, like, a race at the beginning of the summer. But they're, like, never long enough or they're never short enough to do a race by the end of the summer. They're always, like, six months long. And so I'll look at the middle and I'll invariably harm myself. But the reality is that the process of valuing the role of your body in your life is actually very, 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 very slow. Mm. And I think for me, before exercise, it started with food and realizing that everything that I ate had an ethical and a relational dimension. And that was a game changer that maybe I'll touch on another time. Yeah, there's a cave that just goes echoing down. Right, but I feeling connected to the way that my buying decisions were relational decisions, my eating decisions had to do with the way that I thought uh, the earth should be interacted with. And from there, it was just a little step to like, wow, well, I also have this body and I, you know, liked to run in middle school. My fastest ever mile is still in middle school. And I'm getting close to it again, but nonetheless, I'm not as fast as an eighth grader right now. Eighth grade you. Eighth grade me. But that domino effect, right? Like I remember feeling that as well. And... I mean, truthfully, there could be a series on the body because the whole ethics of food systems uh, is a massive conversation. But almost like one whole conversation could be how disconnected we have become from our bodies. A base conversation I end up having these days with people is, is just, are you aware of the effect of your choices on how you feel in the morning, on how you feel throughout the day, your energy? And that Diet Coke or those hours in front of the television or the amount of sleep you get or the ride on your bike that you did or didn't take, like those are all factors. But this is where I want to push is, so I think every person that I know at one time has taken up running and quit running because running fits. Running is some for some reason the thing that's like the go-to in this vision of like, I got, you know, I really, I want to get back in shape, which like, 
Who's ever been in shape that uses that? Like me included. There's like this illusory past where I was a demigod. But probably if you were in shape, you're not going back to running. You're going back to whatever actual thing you were doing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So I want to jump there because for some, everybody at a certain time has become a runner and then like, oh, I want to be healthy. And that includes some form of like cardio exercise. And I'm pretty sure that cardio has something to do with the heart. So I'll run and then they do it and quit. And I do it and quit because, you know, I have no reason to be doing it. So what's what was the tipping point? Because, you know, we're now pretty deep into the world of uh, running and proprioception and all of the things that we'll get to in a bit. But what pushed you over the edge that you were like, you know what, I'm actually not only going to run, but you snowballed pretty quickly into other things. Yeah. Well, so there was, there was a couple of aspects of it. And one was that it wasn't just this kind of intangible, I want to feel more fit or I want to get healthier. I want to get back to some state that maybe never existed. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I have taken up and quit running multiple times in my life. Instead, it was actually around the, the time where I began to want to set goals for myself that I could then achieve as means of like really small stake stuff because I needed to be building up experiences where I could set a challenge for myself and achieve it. And that actually kind of, that feels like it flies in the face or maybe it goes right in line with this whole idea of millennial uh, sort of like self-congratulation and like, yay, hooray, everyone gets a medal, which, you know, we've, we've also sort of mocked as well. But the truth is, is that if you in your life, you don't have some threshold, some experiences that you are initiating yourself of like, well, I'm gonna, I want to, I want to train to climb a 14er, or I, and they don't have to be physical because some of them weren't. I want to, you know, begin to learn a new language, and and really, the more concrete, the better. So that, that's what it was for me at first. It was okay. So I want to go do this half marathon, which was. I mean, I might as well have been running to Greece as far as I was concerned. Like a half marathon. Yes. Do cars even r- drive that far? Like, it Not felt, in a day. <laughs> it felt so far. And that was a shift for me into it becoming something that I could do regularly. And in the midst of that, I, like a great byproduct was that I began to see the effects on my body and my mental state at the time, I was coming out from depression. And so being active and having those levels of serotonin and dopamine flowing through my body was, I never quite, I don't know if I ever really had the runner's high, but certainly the the general reaction, even at a low level, was so beneficial that I was like, I, I got to have this more. And then I began to dream, right? And I remember a year and a half ago now, maybe more, maybe even two and a half years ago, I was sitting around dreaming of what are things that I would love to do that like would never have been possible before. And because I had set out a goal of running the half marathon and then doing it and succeeding in it, it was like, wait, what else is possible? And it was huge for, I mean, it was huge for my running and my exercise, but it was also huge for being willing to go to apply to some jobs I didn't think I was going to get. And so something that I had always been really inspired by were the Iron Man stories, these guys and women who just phenomenally talented performing at Kona. And I I had kind of liked the idea of being a cyclist and they always looked really sleek and it kind of seemed like a little, like it was like a club that you had to be invited into. And there's a serious threshold of for cost. And I've always loved water, loved the ocean, but never been like a particularly good swimmer. And so I could run and I wanted to know the other two. And so I started kicking around the dream of like, what if we did a triathlon? And if we could create a program, like we essentially went from couch to triathlon over the course of several years. Yeah. I just want to highlight goals, huge. And I think that I would normally conceive of goals in like high level. There's a piece of advice, like sign up for a race and you have the goal to be able to run three miles or things like that. But, and those are absolutely helpful, but there's a smaller version that I've found to be as rewarding, this feeling of completion. And it's actually day to day and workout to workout. Like most of the time earlier, I would relate with my training plan in the way that a convict relates to their sentence. You must do these things. And then you kind of let off the hook 
back into your normal life. Totally. And so, you know, I would approach a hill that I was supposed to sprint up 10 times with, this is my penance. And at 10 sprints, I am free again versus framing it of like, that is a micro goal of, no, no, no. I would love to be able, you know, to sprint this hill five times without slowing down more than three seconds. Like, Mm. and that's not something that I'm being forced to do that. This is like, something that I'm writing into my training plan like every 10 days or so of like, get this, try to run this distance at this pace, try to run this distance at this pace. And because then you have these, this graduation of your increase in skill that is super small because most of the time my goals are much too big to be, you know, reasonable to me. Like we have the Ironman goal, which, you know, we kicked around last year and we're building towards it. But if that was the only thing we were doing, we would have freaking quit because... Oh, yeah, right. Because in the me- in the meantime, before you get there, what are you achieving? Uh, I'm The mental thing feels like something we do need to come back to in the training because there's so much there. And I was just thinking about how many books these days are written on performance and like habits to be a successful person. Like training, training was hard. And, and they say it takes two weeks to develop a habit. Like there are... There's a quote that I love that applies to training, and it's by Greg LeMond. And he says, it never gets easier. You just go faster. And this is like a phenomenal world-class cyclist, started his own you know, bicycle brand. And that almost feels true for even like getting out the door to go for a training ride, bike, or run. Like it doesn't necessarily get easier. Just you get faster at being willing to go do it. And even, like that in and of itself was huge. Oh, and that was actually something that stopped me running for a long time because I just knew that it was always going to hurt. And there was kind of this, if I got better, all it meant was that I had to move a little quicker. And so here were my tipping points. There were two in particular when, you know, I also several, like a year after Sam picked up the half marathon goal, but and I did it, but I didn't really like the training process, and I didn't keep running after I ran that half marathon. My my uptake was a little slower. But it was this. I remember with cycling, when I realized something that's very obvious, but it is, instead of going out to become fit or to get strong, it was realizing that I was going to learn skills. That was one piece. Hmm. And that was true for each discipline, like, we assume that because if something chases us, most people have the ability to break into a run, that running is something that I know how to do. This is very, very, very untrue. Like, we're in our 20s, and, you know, we've already accumulated so many injuries and this knee thing and that ankle thing. And the the term is biomechanics, the actual, like, the functioning of your muscles and your musculoskeletal system. And most people, it's so out of whack just from living life for a couple of decades. They go out to run and, you know, someone who was an experienced runner would look at them and be like, oh man, you're going to die. You're going to hurt yourself. Like, stop it. You don't know how. Mm. And that was actually great for me, realizing like, oh my gosh, I don't I just have to go like run quickly. I need to, you know, become a student of running and not just know like what a training plan looks like, but know like, if eventually I want to move my body in this way, if I want my foot strike to look like this, what do I do a piece at a time to get there? That's been really fun. Totally. I actually remember that being a source of joy for us because if if getting out and doing something physical is purely suffering, and then you, all you're really developing is your ability to suffer longer, which truthfully is a later part of training, but at first, like if it's all like it's just getting out the off the couch and going for a mile run or getting on the bike and slogging up some hills, like you can only enjoy that for so long. And then it, I think I remember actually, I mean, it was the first time getting on a road bike because we'd been we've been riding mountain bikes all growing up or you know whatever Walmart sold, and it just felt like a jet. And it felt like what that first joy was like again yes. when you had learned how to ride a bike for the first time. And then it became this. Well, there are, there's a form to climbing hills. There's a form to descending. There's a form to safely turning quickly. There's a form to these, these gears. And like training shifted for me, I assume it shifted for you. Like there are times when it's about suffering, but for the most part, it's actually about joy. 
Yeah, and that is the huge piece that I would say was my second turning point in training of all kinds was um, right in there with the joy was my goal, in addition to going out to learn skills, was to experience God. Hmm. And I think that I have at various times just been motivated by all the factors of there There are bits of shame, There are, there's bits of self-talk that are like purely like perform better, you know, try harder, do better, versus there's this invitation to a kind of intimacy in your running of like, go out to run, but like, you know, I actually want you, Father, to tell me how hard to go and when to slow down and when to, when to speed up. And mm. I want joy in this run, but that is really only going to be possible if you are mediating this experience for me. Because otherwise I'm just by myself trying to figure out these things. And I will say that like the triune God is a pretty excellent trainer, exercise to exercise, I've found. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Uh, where do you buy a subscription plan? Where he just does he speak to your phone like like Strava? No, I would just go listen. <laughs> no, that's so good. What I'm also struck by in this conversation is that we're making an assumption. And the assumption is that there's something critical to the introduction or reintroduction and involvement of physical training and engagement in your life that's habitual and part of your whole rather than just as a one-time thing. Like as we say goals and as we say training, you know, there's, I, I've done this and I know plenty of people that have as well, but there's a tendency to set like, I'm going to run the, you know, 10K color run. And then kind of the training sort of does and doesn't happen. And then it's sort of, you do the race and then it's kind of done. And that's very, very different than the language we're using here, which is assuming actually the training, maybe training is the wrong word because going out and doing it, like that is the goal for the day. And involving it in a lifestyle, like that's what I love. We've done three triathlons, another bike event that was like a, I don't know, it was like a 12 hour thing. It was a relay, several um, running events. And like, that's still just a handful. Like that, that sounds to me kind of like a lot because I've never done any of those before. And so doing two like astronomically raises how many I've done, but that compared to the daily, like, oh my gosh, the, like 99% of what you're going to be doing is, is in the daily and the weekly. And I love that part of it. I love the goal of like the race, but I also love and I'm making an assumption in this that involving these aspects of learning and inviting God into it and engaging your body in a more consistent practice is really the point rather than just how do you, how's, what's the easiest way to run a marathon? And I'd love to know that because I'd love to do a marathon, but I also want to better perform in my running. So I'm not going to hurt myself so that I can do this for a lifetime. Yes. And here's just one example without dipping at all into the philosophy of the body. So we know that if you stop eating refined sugar, other food begins to taste sweeter, and then actually your palate expands, that there's a multiplication to the amount of flavors you can discern if refined sweetness is not anywhere in your food. We also know that actually digestion is like a full body process. There's like, you know, places in the manufacturing of energy in the muscles that are meant to consume sugars, meant to receive sugars. Um, so say you exercise in the morning and then you live like the rest of a normal day. So, you know, people say like, I have a fast or a slow metabolism, blah, 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 blah. So just metabolism just refers to like the entirety of the chemical processes of the body. But your stomach is not the only thing that digests. Actually, the breaking down of food is supposed to be done through each body system, but, you know, the musculoskeletal system lends a huge hand. And so actually, simply for being able to get the most out of what you're eating and to digest well requires some form of movement. And I would just, I would just use that as an example of one of kind of like the multiplication factors that you don't expect or that I wouldn't expect when I began, you know, to move more and to move more intentionally, but that I have experienced, which people will, would kind of put on under the umbrella term wellness. Um, and it is wellness, but it's also this unanticipated wholeness that is 
kind of rewarding in ways that you wouldn't look for. Hmm. Yeah, that's killer. I remember something that really motivated me was I saw this image, this sexual is a set of images years ago, and it was three MRI scans of different men's calf and their calf muscles. It was a 24-year-old man who was the first, and he was a runner, and it was like mostly muscle and a little bit of skin, a little bit of fat, and the, you know, the bone. And then the next two were two 70-year-old men. And the first one was a kind of a sedentary, and you might think of your standard 70-year-old man. And man, it was mostly atrophied. Like there was some muscle, but there was a lot of fat and a lot of atrophy, and the leg was, you know, deteriorating, and you know, the bone doesn't look quite the same. And then there was the 70-year-old man who runs next to that. And it looked almost identical to the 24-year-old runner, the 25-year-old. That There was an atrophy, there was muscle, there was this ability to function that you could just, the image spoke volumes, you could just tell. And looking at that, it was pretty clear to me in that moment, maybe mostly out of horror, but also out of, okay, I need to, I need to like, gain a long-term vision again, yes, of my day-to-day, and also of where I want to be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And in that case, you know, it was close to 50 years away. And that was like, that was a pretty good motivator that began the conversation and, and the shift into, okay, I don't know how to do these things, but I know I want to. And though I could run, I kind of, truthfully, I've never been like the best runner and would get bored of it, would start listening to audiobooks. And I needed something that truthfully was going to like not give me as many excuses to not go. Yes. If there were two other events, two other disciplines, you know, my knees hurting one day or my back's hurting another day, like I can adjust and I could go and do something that's not going to be hard on that particular part of my body, which takes away the excuse to not go do something. And keeps things interesting and fresh and that was the that was part of the pull for me into triathlon and including multiple disciplines into exercise rather than just being someone who uh, kind of does whatever they want and then goes jogging occasionally to stay quote-unquote fit this is the perfect transition spot here we go sport at a time let's just assume that we're not going to say And I would never tell a friend of mine, hey, just go run. The only one that I might say go do is get on a bike. Because if your seat post is at the right height, it's hard to do that wrong. But still, I would say, okay, you want to learn how to do these things? Here are the kinds of, here are good points of entry into those sports. So one at a time, running. Somebody is mostly sedentary right now. What are things just doesn't have to be, I don't think we'd be able to do these in like a perfect progression, but there are lots of things that we can toss out here that are helpful around liking running, running in joints, running in workouts. What things would you highlight for a person who wanted to be a runner? Uh, Yeah. I mean, a lot of things come to mind. And so we're speaking here from the last two and a half years of research and reading and listening. And so take take our words with the knowledge that we come from, there's we're going to be pulling actually from a lot of other people who have done a lot more knowledge and reading and, and research. But when I'm thinking about a college buddy who's going to start running again, I'm, I actually go to like, okay, what are you wearing? <laughs> are, do, yes. are, do you have a new pair of running shoes? That doesn't have to be new. They can just be an old pair that you barely used, um, but they can't be the ones from 10 years ago and they can't just be your sneakers um, because what you're going to do right away is you're going to probably go too hard, too far, too fast and hurt yourself. And so... Or hate it. Well, or yeah, and hate it. Or go in the middle of the day. Like there's... I want want to set you up for as enjoyable of an experience as possible, which means you probably need to go slower and not as far as you think um, to start off with. Like to take your time and go to a time of day when it's not going to be miserable. And frankly, go when you've eaten for a couple of hours ago and have been hydrating up to that point. Um, yeah, let me just jump in right there because that's such a key piece of advice that's actually massive. Like if you are not, if you don't enter in a way that's enjoyable, 
You will not stick with it unless you're some kind of alien. And and here's why. First book recommend Matt Fitzgerald, Brain Training for Runners. This is not a book of thought exercises. It's a training book that takes recent research into account on the fact that, hey, body movement is brain-mediated. So you don't have like a conscious connection to your muscle. When you're walking and you start to feel tired, it's not because that muscle is actually tired. It's because your whole brain is analyzing the relevant data about your muscle and then presenting you an experience, presenting your conscious deciding mind an experience. Like, hey, we don't normally hike. It's hot. We've been going hard. And if we go like this forever, we'll die. So stop in five minutes. And then your mind is going to give you feelings of loss of motivation, of fatigue, a feeling pain in the muscle. And those are only real in kind of a, an abstract sense. So seriously, if you jump into running and your shoes aren't good for your feet and you start going too far, too hard, too fast, your body, and by which I mean like your very intelligent brain, will not let you keep going. And you will have so many feelings of lack of motivation that you'll be fighting this dual battle of like, get your body moving, but also kind of keep your heart engaged when your mind keeps telling you, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. And that's a losing game. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, we have to name more of the mental game. We've uh, talked about coaches. I, it was, I think it was the University of Washington's running coach that would make his incoming freshman chant we love hills. Yeah. We love hills as they would run what is a very hilly terrain out there. Um, there is something to what you tell yourself, how you feel about it, why you do it. So when you go out and it's hot and it's hard, and if you're muttering either internally or externally, I hate this. This is so stupid. I suck at this. This is terrible. Like, well, first off, we've got a podcast somewhere on agreements that you really should listen to. Uh, not an Anson's one, a Ransom Heart one. Second of all, like those things are all going to come true. You are going to hate this. You are not going to like this. It's going to get so much harder. And they actually like have done studies on the fact that if you are saying positive things about what you're doing, I love hills, I love hills, you will begin to go faster. You will not fear them as much. You will actually kind of trick yourself into liking them. And when we did our, our second triathlon, it was a relatively flat course. And I found myself missing the hills because we train on hills out here. Like that's how you get, that's how you get better at things. And we say we love them. And we say that we love them. And when we did our first race, there was a ton of hills and people were getting slaughtered by them because they don't like them. So you don't ride them. So I, that's, I think the mental thing is a huge piece. And I would say, I want, like, my next piece of advice would be to diversify what you're doing even in the sport of running, we're talking about one thing at a time. And so if you go for a run and you run the same three miles each time at basically the same pace, you're not actually going to be giving your body a ton of benefit. Now it's like, if these are the first three runs you've done in five years, that's a great start. But actually incorporating a hill day or, or climbing some stairs at the, uh, the football stadium or doing a faster but shorter run. Like be, this variation actually has, well, a ton of science behind it, but it's going to have massive benefits for your body and yourself as you begin running. Like I, we try to never repeat at least back-to-back -back a run. Like we'll go in an entirely different direction and decide what we're going to do kind of as we start. We're like, okay, what do you want to do? Like, well... You know, we haven't done hill sprints in a while, so... And the other guy looks at you and goes, like, I wish you hadn't said that. And you're like, well, okay. But I was thinking it. <laughs> but, but you're right, and and we love hills. And so we go and we run and we, you know, do some hill sprints. Yeah, that stuff is so huge. Circling back just for a second to the mental part, I would just emphasize that this is where exercise starts to be so soulful, is you begin to work hard and you begin to experience pain and I do not think that your heart differentiates very well between any of the pains in your life. And your guard is going to be down because you're tired because you're running. And listen to what starts to come up. Like, this is where exercise for me started to be a spiritual discipline with just entering into the fatigue and then kind of listen to what happened in my heart. Like, Sam mentioned agreements. That's huge. Like, if you go for a run and, you know, you're so slow, you'll never do this. Like, you're a screw-up. All of a sudden comes up. 
something is surfacing in you in the side of running that you actually have the opportunity to renounce an agreement, break something that got in in the story earlier, or just kind of find a little more about what your internal world looks like. And as you do that more and more, you'll actually find some pretty cool restoration happening in your internal world, which is going to result in changing your disposition. Yeah, that's so good. Because truthfully, like the enemy doesn't actually want any good things for you. And in our most high stakes areas of our life, it's really hard to see what's going on or what the opposition is. But I also, I really love it when the enemy overplays their hand, just like put the whole, every card on the table, which can feel terrible when you're getting dogpiled. But when you go for a run and it's like, you are a failure. You're like, wait, what? I'm just going for I'm just a, jogging. I'm just going for a run. Why am I a failure? Like you are a failure. You're like, yeah, I think I'm a, oh, I wonder if this applies anywhere else in my life. Thank you for, for revealing what's going on here. Yes. Huge. Uh, yeah. Um, running, like we mentioned before, has a form, has a, a way that's going to actually help you and not hurt you. There are some areas in exercise that can be really frustrating because opinions change. And the latest science says you should stretch for five minutes before, but not after. And then two months later, the latest science says, don't stretch at all. It's hurting you. The latest science says, like all of that ends up being really suffocating and all you're going to end up doing is not doing anything. There are, however, some things that science is moving in helpful directions on and has consensus on. And some of that is your running form, your where your foot's striking on the ground. Yeah, let me just jump, jump in, in here. here. It's getting a little foamy at the mouth um, over there. I just love this stuff. And as an aside, here's a very important thing. If you're going to go learn how to run, don't ask blogs. In fact, don't ask anything on the internet. What YouTube you want, has some helpful videos. There are helpful videos, but knowing which ones, because you, there's, um, there's an analogy. It's called the bike shed analogy. And it's like if you told your neighbor that you were going to build a nuclear power plant, they would be like, oh, they wouldn't say anything to you because they have no idea how it works. But if you said you were building a bike shed, they would say like, well, make sure your trusses are 16 inches apart. Like, and they would have opinions, even though they're not a carpenter, and they actually don't know the perfect way a bike shed should be built. Exercises like that. Everybody has read something on Facebook. Everybody knew a friend or themselves participated in a sport in high school and remembered what their coach said. So... People are going to think they have information, but quality really matters here. And so, you know, like when I mentioned like Matt Fitzgerald, Brain Training for Runners, that is a scrupulously well-researched book and it's peer-reviewed. And, you know, if people aren't making, don't have anything to sell, they often don't have anything to say. So if they wrote a blog post rather than a book, you know, just take that under consideration and then make sure that, you know, the other one, for interval training, which we'll bring up in a bit, like, you know, uh, Dr. G- Martin Gabala, PhD, literally wrote the book on interval training. It's called The One-Minute Workout. And that is a great source. And that's much better than going to the internet and Googling, like, what's good running form? Because this guy will say, oh, use the pose method, because that's how CrossFit does it. And those guys are really fast. And these other guys will get like, oh, no, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, wear an ultra cushioned shoe and view it as a series of squats and practice this way. So other people get rid of shoes entirely, run barefoot. Exactly. Other person fall forward method. You're basically trying to keep up with your feet. It's it's too much. So So some comments on form. And these are derived from Matt Fitzgerald, who wrote the book, Brain Training for Runners, which has a lot of very helpful things on how you build this technique over time. And then from Ryan Flaherty, who's the performance coach at Nike, uh, he has a podcast with Tim Ferriss. Just search Tim Ferriss, Ryan Flaherty. You'll find that podcast. Listen to it. It's fantastic. Savant of Speed. I the think Savant it's of Speed, yeah. But widely agreed upon, your foot should not strike in front of you. Okay, so if you, what you want is your foot to hit right underneath you. Um, and there's a number of other things you want to happen too. But, you know, what to focus on, the 20% to focus on to get you 80% of the benefit is a foot strike that is right underneath your pelvis. And then your core is tight and your chest is up. You're not slouching over. You're not leaning back. And that on its own uh, will get you a huge part of the way. But I think right with focusing on that, someone who's about to become a runner, there are 
a few things that I would highlight that have been really helpful for me is, as we've been as we've read and learned over the past year and a half. And the first one is, yeah, you know, running hard on your muscles, but what it's really hard on is your joints. And so if you want to start running and you're starting from zero, the thing that's going to get injured first, unless you're like sprinting on flat ground all the time, in which case you'll hurt your hamstring, the thing that's going to get injured first is your knees and your ankles. And so introduce some stretching into your life uh, to increase the mobility of your joints. And then like super mild strength training. We're talking like body weight squats and do like 20 of them in a row and then rest until you don't feel tired anymore and then do another 20. And that's great. Like that's a win. You did it during your work day, but you're actually adding tension to your joints. You're increasing their mobility so that when you start to practice running, you've got a strong foundation. And then the other thing that I would say is, you know, with building up that running technique with your foot being right underneath you is you, you want to find some resources. You want to find, find some books. Uh, you can search like top 10 books on running. They'll probably all be pretty good. Like you can look in the reviews and see if they're widely panned. Um, but using something and, you know, we'd read Born to Run when that was a big deal. I read that in college and then panned Matt Fitzgerald for a long time. He's actually written a number of books, one on cross training that I ran into and then this brain training one. But it was the first book that actually had like a section on if you want good running form, incorporate these drills. They don't take long. You've just gone for a 20-minute run. Do these things three or four times, and it will begin to retrain the firing pattern of your muscle. Just like learning to do a back handspring. You don't go do a back handspring. You practice squatting and falling, squatting and falling back, squatting and falling back. You practice like the head throw, the head throw. And then you practice the way that you're going to then fire your abdominal muscles to begin bringing your legs over. Like you learn that a little bit of time and then your firing pattern is perfect and you go and you're a champion or not. And that's probably enough for running. Besides just to say, you actually don't need to do very much. And that's, you'll find that if you read Dr. Gabal's book, or if you listen to his podcast with Tim Ferriss, which is all about interval training. But just know, a few sprints well executed with a little time between them can be as effective as going for a long run, can actually be more effective than going for a long run. So no need to go become an ultramarathoner if you don't want to. Yeah. So as we transition to biking, I think that's something that I've also noticed is that transition for you in, in this exercising from don't make it unenjoyable for yourself. So keep those thresholds low in order to go. But eventually, as you begin to develop routines, like you you want to work hard. You you want to be setting goals of like, push yourself a little further than you think this time. Go climb that hill a little bit harder. And that's when I think about cycling. Everybody, the first thing that comes to mind is bike and bike fit and because it's your gear because it's easily the one with the most components and the most going on and you can drop as much money as you'd like in cycling gear but I got by with a Craigslist bike and some hand-me-down shoes and bibs and you know bought a jersey and I did that for like a year and a half I just had one pair and with a good bike fit it was all I needed I commuted on it I and then I would just go. And well, the incredible thing about biking versus running is we could do a whole podcast on biking as well. But um, if you're going for a, a run and, you go, and you've got time, and you've got 30 minutes, you're only going to go so far depending on your speed. If you are going on a bike and you've got 30 minutes, you're just going to see so much more country. We actually had a conversation with a guy who works at one of the major bike manufacturing companies. And they were relaying on this conversation with a guy who represents REI and he'd just come by their office and was, you know, doing a pitch for them about how REI has done adult learning classes. And they they'd serviced I think it was over forty thousand people, but it was in the tens of thousands. And their most popular course with like over eighty percent of attendees choosing this one was how to ride a bike. It wasn't how to mountain bike. It wasn't how to cycle on the road. It wasn't how to get better, be more aggressive. It was just like how do I balance on two wheels? And so if that's more of the category that you're in, there's tons of grace there. And I think some of the resources I would recommend in that, it actually is YouTube. There's a YouTube channel called GCN or the Global Cycling Network. And there are these British guys who are 
all out of the pro circuit. And they've got a bunch of great tips for beginners, a bunch of great workouts indoors and outdoors. Um, they're I love those guys because they're hilarious. Yeah. But they're not elitist, even though they could be. And with like with the bike, with the cycling and the biking and the training for that, there's a little bit less of form and more emphasis on your cadence. Once once you've got your bike set up correctly, you're not going to like have to think about it necessarily every time. You're just going to get on the bike and go. Instead, what you're going to be thinking about is how hard are you working at this hill? Which way are you going to be gearing low? Are you going to be gearing high? How aerodynamic am I going to be on this turn or on this descent? Um, and so like, there's just so much to play with there. There's power, there's fueling, there's all of that. And I think what really helped me to remove like the excuse not to go was I got one of those like cheap stationary trainers for when it's cold here for half the year. Which is a lot. Um, and I could take my bike and throw it on it. Um, so I didn't need to buy any more equipment other than that and just take it downstairs. And I'll open up a YouTube training video that's, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. They're all different. They all do different things. And it like, boom, there you go. There's your interval cycling. Absolutely. I would even add there, my gateway drug into cycling was a Craigslist bike that cost $60. And it was, you know, it was horrible. It was like a piece of junk and it didn't shift well, but it was a road bike and it did have road bike geometry. And, you know, the joy there was pretty monumental. Um, and then $200 will get you a lot of bike and probably something you're going to have to like budget for and work towards. But something with integrated shifters where the brakes and the shifters are all in one piece on the handlebars, that's going to take the joy factor to a new level because you don't have to constantly shift positions in order to change gears. I'd say that would be something to look for. Low barrier of entry, joy. And then, yeah, a little, I love the GCN guys. Uh, that's a great recommendation. And then, I think that there ought to there should be a training series on how to go into your local bike shop. Seriously. <laughs> because you know, our, we've been biking for a long time now, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, we grew up biking. And we know the names of all the components pretty much. Yep. We've actually built bikes at several bikes from the frame up at this point. And how much do you like going in the local bike shop? Uh, it's the worst. Yeah, I freaking hate it. They uh, depending on the bike shop. Like there there was a bike shop. No wait. That was a motorcycle shop. No, I actually hate them all. Okay, it's just because, you know, they're so dedicated. It's like going, in, it feels like going into an elite gym where like there's the shame factor and unfortunately a snobbery. lot of local bike shops yeah, tend to be a little snobby about your ignorance when you come in and they'll like ask you a question that you don't know the answer to. And uh, that can be very uncomfortable. Nonetheless, I would say that there are times when like, you know, maybe also your local bike shop has awesome, passionate guys who love bringing novices into the sport. And if you're a total novice, they do tend to be nicer than if you're not a total novice and you know a little, they seem a little more uh, intent on like grinding you into dust. It can be like a coffee shop. It can be like going into a bougie coffee shop and saying, I want the drink with the espresso and the foam. Yeah. You're going to get destroyed. <laughs> I want to, you've got to know a lot of names just to find your way around it. There. Jimmy sent me. Yeah, but. I would just return to, you know, bike Bike fit is everything. And yes, you can look online and they won't lie to you. They will tell you how your bike should fit. But that is as much an art as it is a science. And in the beginning, go in, stomach the shame if there's going to be shame. Enjoy the camaraderie if you happen to get camaraderie. Uh, but REI will do it. You know, a bike fit will cost like 50 bucks, unfortunately. But you're really riding a bike when your seat post is at the right height. And when your stem is the right size and when the angle of your torso is perfect, suddenly you find yourself in this really uh, incredible moving position and your lower back won't hurt and you're, you won't, you know, over hyperextend your knees and it's just going to be a much better game. I have to say that like learning how to do all the stuff on my bike was one of the most satisfying things at the beginning. Later on, I think it was to be building a bike. But at first, like just knowing how to tune your gears how to degrease, clean, regrease your bike, how to make sure everything's running properly, making sure you have the right pressure of air in your tires. Like you can actually go into a bike shop and have them do that for you. But for us, it was something that we wanted to learn together and ended up being like one of the points where we kind of gathered around. Um, you know, somebody be like, okay, I got to put a new chain on my bike because 
I don't know, the guy at the bike shop told me I needed one and they were trying to sell it to me, but I bought it from here. So like, let's put it on. And then we learned how to do it. And then we like bought like the little park tool, home bike mechanic toolkit. And like, that's been amazing and love actually the rollover from that into confidence in other areas. Because though a bike is a relatively simple thing in that it has a frame, a seat, handlebars for steering and two wheels for momentum, things get a little bit more complicated these days, especially depending on the uh, the price tag of your bike. I mean, yeah, right. I, oh, there are bikes out there that cost, these guys that roll into triathlons, like their bikes cost twice as much as their cars and they're beautiful machines. But for like the low entry, I mean, we had like the Craigslist bikes and they were great and you need to like do a little bit of Googling to know what to look for. And uh, yeah, I, these are the other things I would throw out here that feel like entry-level biking. Uh, one, uh, you know, throw some planks in your exercise regime because a lot of your power transfer comes from your core and you'll actually, it, you'll just enjoy every part of biking, including sitting for a long time more if you've done some like basic core strengthening. And I think that the easier it is for you, like the exercise you'd like to do the most, I would say, you know, sit-ups, not a great exercise for your back. Crunches, I don't like them because they're really hard. Uh, planks and like, uh, like things like flutter kicks, um, I do like, and I will do those. And then I would say, we know that with like, if you're going to go on a run, there's different kinds. There's jogging, fast jogging, sprinting. That's the same on a bike, but often people get on a bike and kind of go at one speed. Like they have an uphill speed and a downhill speed. I would just say, hey, keep in mind, you actually will be using fast versus slow twitch muscles and you'll be using a different dominant muscle group. Uh, you know, if you're sprinting on a hill, for example, you're going to use a lot more of like uh, your hamstrings, you know, the backside of your leg. And if you're in a really low gear, you're going to use your glutes a lot more because that push is going to be very difficult. And so make sure, think about breaking those up. If on this hill, I'm going to be in a really high, difficult gear. And on this flat, I'm going to be in really low, fast spinning gear and spin my legs really quickly. And this is my final biking point. Guys, gears, it's like a car. So the low gears are for going slow and the high gears are for going fast. That drove me crazy forever because I couldn't figure out because, you know, like the chain rings in the front are opposite where the big ones, the big ones harder and the little ones easier. And it's the, it's the other way, you know, on your rear cassette. But so if you're in a low gear, your spinning is easy. If you're in a high, high gear, spinning is hard. And that will just make it a lot easier to have conversations about what happened on your bike ride with other cyclists. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, yeah, the varying thing up is is huge. And there's also a mental piece I want to come back to because this is true for biking and for running, though not necessarily true for swimming. It's often better to set like a time for you to go that, that your workout's going to last with a bike and a run, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, something like that, and then necessarily a mile goal. Because as you begin to train, you're going to end up having kind of like the ability to push yourself for so many miles. And say you're doing like a sprint triathlon, you're gearing yourself up for 12.2 miles on the bike. And you're going to, you're going to get really good at doing that one thing. Well, that's kind of bringing it back to like running around the track again. And if on the day of your race or if the next day you go for the bike ride, like it's really windy or there's more hills, that 12, 12 miles is not going to look the same in any direction that you ride. And so you're going to end up doing different difficulties. You're going to push yourself. You're going to hold back different ways. And it goes back into the mental component. And something I've noticed is that my brain seems to set my pain pushing threshold somewhere actually around 50%. Um, and we noticed this on our relay day. We did this mountain biking relay race that was 12 hours and we would finish a lap and just be redlining it. Just a heart rates through the roof, going as hard as you possibly can for six miles, trying to put out as many laps as a team as possible. And, and my brain would get to the end of one and be like, you can't do that again. And I'd, I'd get, you know, about an hour and a half to rest and then go do it again. And my brain in the first part would tell me like, you can't do this. You should stop. But it, as I kept pushing that, like, no, I'm, I am going to do this and I am going to push that thing to, further down the field. Like it revealed new degrees of suffering that I can do. I noticed tangible, like, another tangible example, the same exact thing. If I told myself I was going to go out for a three mile run, a three mile run would be hard. It would, like, I would just, I, I'd finish it and I would feel like I'd worked out. 
And then if I told myself I was going to go for a six-mile run, I would go and it would be hard and I would get to the end and feel like I'd worked out. And I would have hit the three-mile mark without even noticing it. And all of a sudden, it's twice as far, but my body feels the same. And it was like, this this is clearly like me telling, like my brain telling my body, you've set this goal, slow down, tiger. We think you're going to hurt yourself. So I think that's where the time thing can be super helpful. If you want to go for a ride, vary it up and say like, we're going to go for 50 minutes. And this isn't, you hit mile 10 and you're done because you might get out there and you realize you've got another 20 minutes to go. And so let's go do another lap in the neighborhood. So here's my resource recommend on cycling. Watch the documentary, The Armstrong Lie. It will tell you a lot about cycling, but also it will kind of, you know, the the elitism of cycling is really intimidating and the craziness of pro cycling and why does everybody dope or like, what is, and is it a real issue? All those things are addressed in that film. It's a great documentary. Strongly encourage it. And you'll learn things like that, you know, cyclists working hard have the highest output of energy of any animal except the hummingbird. And so all cyclists talk about suffering. It's like they, they love it and it's we want you to suffer. Cycling's all about suffering. But they kind of use it, you know, in, in a lot of conditions like, you know, there's pain and then there's suffering and like pain is okay, but suffering, like it's beginning to do damage. And like it's not, it's not spoken of that way in cycling. Um, and the reason is that actually in a lot of these workouts, as you begin to enter workouts, there's, here's a huge shift for me that applies to all of them that was helpful is that suffering every once in a while is your fuel. And you want to consume as much of it as you possibly can. Like, you're like, hey, I'm going to go on a little run today, but I want to hurt as much as possible. And then as you start to hurt, you can go like, good. I want to hurt a little more. I want to see if I can hurt a little more. And like, because that is going to massively over time. In your other workouts, change your experience. Very true in cycling where it's possible to hurt really bad. I mean, your legs can light on fire. And then back to what we talked about at the beginning, how that then unfolds in the rest of your day and the rest of your life of your, you know, developing your ability to suffer and push through something hard. Great to develop that in an area that you have more control over than areas you don't. So switching now to swimming, we'll, we'll be totally honest and say that like we grew up, uh, you know, in Colorado with vacations to California and the ocean. So, you know, pools and swim lessons as a kid and, you know, can stay afloat, can pass a swim test. But cannot move quickly or efficiently through the water. And so we sort of ate the humble pie and looked around and found a swim instructor that could give us lessons. One of the guys on our team is really interested in the whole working smarter, not harder. And so they happened to find the total immersion uh, system and a guy that could teach us that, which is all about human beings are only 3% efficient in the water and phenomenally talented athletes actually are a six. So there's not a whole lot there. And that's actually a pretty discouraging number if you think about it, which means you can't just get in the water and thrash around and hope to experience very much gain. Actually, what you can do instead is focus on your form, your posture, your aqua dynamics, your resistance through the water, your posture and, and buoyancy, uh, your breathing, all of that. Like Those end up becoming massive points of focus. And it's a little bit like the the bike shed analogy as well of if you have a form, if there's been something you're doing, it, it's actually probably better to stick with it rather than try and take on the, the new and latest form. But for us and for a lot of people that are new to it, jumping in with a form that was like, here's what you need to practice. Here's here's the way your arms should be entering the water. Here's the ways your feet should move. Here's how you should be taking a breath. You should be looking down, not straight ahead. You should be keeping your hips up. Like Those were almost too much to think about in any given lap. And it took a long time of like, I'm just thinking about hands. I'm just thinking about the catch. I'm just thinking about where I'm looking and and begin to like build on those. Yeah, let me just emphasize that like crazy. So if you have a swimming foundation and you know swimming technique, you swam competitively, awesome. I wish I was you. If you don't, as Sam said, human beings are 3% energy efficient in the water. So if you're just trying to swim further and you're trying to get stronger, then 100% of your swim training is going for 3% of your real swimming results. Whereas the, the best thing you can do is learn how to move efficiently and with as little effort and uh, as long strokes as you can. So yeah, we do TI. I would absolutely recommend the Total Immersion Swimming DVDs. 
Uh, you can also YouTube those videos. And swimming, super practical, you know, running, you know, to be competitive with the best runners, all you need is a pair of running shoes. Biking, unfortunately, none of us own cool $5,000 bikes, you know, but you can... At you, some point with cycling, technology is going to beat you, yeah, unfortunately. But that comes like way later in the game. That's right. at the point of marginal gains where, you know, you, you just need a bike that's not going to fall out from under you. Uh, and, but swimming, you wear goggles and I'm going to, we are not supported by them, unfortunately, or by, you know, anybody actually anybody, we've, any triathlon brand has yet to come on as an Anson's partner, but Aquasphere, the Aquasphere Cayenne goggles. They're They've the, been great. Yeah. They're like 20 bucks on Amazon. Yeah. And they're the last goggles you'll ever need. Like you won't, you don't have to take them off to adjust the tension. They, they're actually like ergonomically perfect for your eye socket, which isn't a circle. Your eye socket is like kind of almost kite shaped. Yeah. I think I read something initially that was a piece of advice for people training for triathlon, which was to actually commit to the sport that you're doing to kind of become invisible in that sport. And so, you know, they were mocking people that would buy a tri suit and go to the pool in it. Well, a tri suit is going to be a little bit uncomfortable because it has a chamois as you're swimming and it's going to wear out something that's not meant for that purpose. And it's not meant for training in the pool. And so, you know, we have a pair of jammers and a swim cap and goggles. We've got you know, like the, the Lycra for the biking days and the running shorts for the running days. And like, those are, those are investments and you kind of pick them up over time. But fortunately, it's not quite as expensive to get into swimming. The expensive part tends to be the pool membership and all of that and finding a benefactor for you if it's too hard to get into the why. But yeah, the, the TI stuff is, was, has been great for us. Um, and I found myself wishing that I could go back in time and tell high school Sam to take up swimming so that I could just be reaping the benefits of that now. Um, Although if we do create a time machine, it's possible Anson's will be a moot point. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah, swimming has been one of those things that is also very kind on the body. And so when the, the back is hurting or the knees are hurting, to get in the pool and put in lap goals, like that's been phenomenal. And again, back to the mental thing, you are going to push yourself kind of as hard as you will let yourself. And so it's been really good for us to get in and have drills. So we'll do five minutes of warm up. And then depending on the length of the pool, we'll sprint one length and rest and then sprint and rest and sprint and rest. And then we'll double it after having done that a few times and we'll sprint twice as far or sprint and cool down, swim back. Some days we won't do sprinting. We'll just do distance. You know, okay, we're going to swim for 30 minutes without stopping. At this point, we're going much further than what we were training for. We were training for a sprint triathlon, but we're the hope of someday maybe doing an Ironman. And the point, again, being taking care of your body and building up these things. Like, again, it was the, the point to diversify what you're doing in any given training for any given discipline. Absolutely. And the one thing that I would add to swimming is count your strokes. The fewer strokes you take, the more efficient you'll be in general. And so... Counting your strokes will actually give you something to focus on as you go back and forth across the pool rather than counting your laps. Your laps isn't really a useful measurement. And in any of these exercises, just to repeat, you're entering these disciplines to be a student of the discipline, to learn it a piece at a time. And so, you know, you're not actually focusing on going to the pool to do a 20-minute swim. That doesn't mean anything. Like, you know, if I could take a floaty around my waist and jump in and technically it was a 20-minute swim... Whereas if I want to learn to be a swimmer, then there are going to be things like, yeah, I'm going to spend five minutes and I'm going to be warming up and all I'm going to be focusing on is the point where my hand enters the water and my other hand switches into an aquadynamic position. And I'm not going to be as fast as I am hopefully at other times, but I'm going to be focusing wholly on the movement of my body and I'm going to do that five minutes and then I'm going to switch to something else. And that kind of thing, it's that kind of thing across these sports that has made them actually fun and then has actually, you know, helped us to get better at them. Yeah, better. We actually ended up on the podium of our first two events, which was kind of surprising, but it wasn't the goal either. We had, the, you know, those were two shorter events. Then our, our longer event was just joy and finishing. And, you know, we weren't 
I think we were in the top 10, but like, great. Okay. That's of our age group. Of our age group. Yeah. 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 No, we didn't actually win, like, win. We win. didn't beat the professionals. Yet. I did get invited to, uh, you know, regionals and all that, but uh, no, nationals. Na- nationals. That's right. Um, but like, that's uh, like to Blaine's point. There's what, what's the posture that you're taking into it with? And, and we have found that the shift of this as a core part of my, life as a core part of my daily rhythms has been massively beneficial for how I feel about work, how I feel about God, how I feel about my family. And frankly, like people close to me can tell if I've done a workout that day or not, have I eaten well? And it begins to be part of the whole of that you want to be training your mind. You want to be training your heart, your soul. Don't neglect the body. I This is, I think, the whole point of this podcast. And then for those of you that want to geek out, hopefully you've enjoyed us sharing some of our thoughts as we've kind of taken it down rabbit holes and truthfully only scratched the surface. And uh, if any of you guys are around town and want to stop by and talk shop or have the Ann Sons $50 bike fit, um, we'd be happy to help you out. On that point, I think to be true to myself, I need to end with a little etymology and health. Any guesses about where the word health comes from? Uh, I remember like from the health class, it was like the general well-being of mental, physical. So, But that's a modern. No, no. What is it? It shares roots with, actually, it just comes from, its root is wholeness. Hmm. And so that actually, when we're talking about engaging with your body, we're not talking about, you know, in some way leveling up and becoming a better kind of person. We're talking about engaging as a whole person with all of the things at your disposal. So the things of the mind, the things of the heart, the things of the body, and those together create a kind of wholeness that until you begin to experience it, it's difficult to understand the benefits of. Guys, thanks for dropping by and listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it today. If you want to keep tabs on us and what other projects we've got going on, the best way to do that is to follow us on social media. If you are no longer on social media like some of us, don't panic. You can still keep tabs on what we're up to. Just go to ansonsmagazine.com, join our mailing list, and we'll keep you in the know. And while you're there, be sure to read the magazine. 